It's September 30th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. On tonight's special edition of Bite Marks Cafe, we'll jump right into our conversation with a couple of news guests. Steve Sue joins us to tell us about an upcoming marketing and networking workshop. Then Sandy Park is here to tell us about the Advanced Manufacturing Conference, which is organized by the High Tech Development Council. High Tech Development Corporation. Corporation. Maybe I should have corrected that. Anyway, finally, we'll revisit the hot topic of unmanned aerial, actually aircraft systems or drones with Hawaii's leading experts, Ted Ralston and Mike Elliott of Drone Services Hawaii. What special applications are we seeing for drones in Hawaii? And can the technology be commercialized in the face of fast-shifting regulations? Please note that today's program is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take your calls. But we will always welcome your feedback. You can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And we want to get straight to our guests. And we have one of them sitting right here ready to tell us all about the this upcoming marketing and networking strategy workshop. He's Steve Sue, and everybody's familiar with Steve and his biz gym and cool pro- projects that are always going on. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, Vert Red. How you guys? Good, good. So, Steve, what have you been doing lately? And oh. you know, before we get into this marketing <laughs> workshop, you know, we've been uh, kind of following all your projects here and there, and you've always got something. Always something cooking, right? Sleeve. Yeah. Hey, so we just got back from San Francisco, and mm-hmm. we did the first Lemonade Alley on the mainland. Oh, really? Yeah, it's great. Uh, NBC saw our little thing in midweek a few months ago, mm-hmm. and they said, you guys made the cover of midweek. That means you're ready for the mainland. Uh, obviously. Oh, you know, right? that's that's, con- maybe that's the reason here. why I haven't made it, because I've <laughs> not been on midweek. Well, let's get you guys up there. <laughs> So they picked us up, and mm-hmm. they're pushing it across the country now. We just did one in uh, the Bay Area, and it was super fun. I actually went up and, and did some you know press tour with them, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it was uh, just too much fun. They raised a bunch well, of money okay, for charities. So, so and, with Lemonade Alley, I mean, you've usually you kind of team up with schools, and you get students participating. Right. Was there a school partner? Was it a district? What, what? No, NBC did it totally different up there. They said, we're going to have 25 booths, give one booth per charity. And each charity raised their own kids. Oh, interesting. So it was more about the charity, and the kids were you know, the follow-along. It was it, When we do it here, it's like the entrepreneurial challenge mm-hmm, for the mm-hmm, kids, right, and then they right, choose a charity. Right, right, so the right. charity is almost like a second fiddle thing. Mm-hmm. But we try very hard to push the charity you know, up front. So the moniker of profit to share is something that we're kind of attacking from both directions now. And the whole thing that happened for us that was really good was uh, NBC said, so what do you want for it? And I was dumbfounded. I said, what do, what do we want for it? And they said, well, yeah, you guys got to get paid too. And so we said, well, we have this lemonade tax that we do to pay for the event. And they said, you guys got it. So that's our business model going forward now. We're licensing out to other organizations that want to run Lemonade Alleys. We provide the whole system. And it supports our show back here. That's fantastic. Isn't that you great? Know, we've been covering Lemonade Alley from the beginning. Burton. I know. We, I was able to be a judge and taste all the delicious You guys lemonade. got the scoops, man. <laughs> so, nice. So seeing this grow is really impressive. And again, since you always have something cooking, I, I did I read something with a partnership with like uh, Real Geeks yes, sir. and other stuff you're doing? Tell us about Super that. Geeks. So Super Tim Geeks. Caminos recently bought Super Geeks. Um, he was the PR and digital media guy for Better Business Bureau for many years. And uh, that's actually where I met Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim is on our board for our foundation. And we started talking. And since he had acquired Super Geeks, we said, well, why don't we do something between my 
uh, consulting practice, which is branding through web marketing, and SuperGeeks, which is really very much in the IT space, but they also mm-hmm. do web marketing. And uh, when we started to compare what we had on the table between the two companies, we realized that we kind of had the makings of the next generation of digital marketing firm. The whole firm. The whole deal from brand, which is, you know, how do you develop keywords to SEO, web building, uh, social, et cetera, et cetera. And basically what I like to think about is if you open a website today, that's that's obviously part of your sales path because anybody's going to vet you there. But it's like opening a store and not turning the lights on because mm-hmm. that's what SEO, search engine optimization, is about is when somebody Googles you, they need to land at your front doorstep, at least pretty close to it, within maybe the top four or five results, ideally the top one or two for any given search term that you want to be found under. And as we really explore deeply into the keyword analysis, which is the terms that you want to associate your company with – most companies approach it from an internal perspective. They're like in the cubicle and they're saying, this is what we think we do. But the customer is searching for something else entirely. They think in a different way, absolutely. Yeah, and so this makes a company get very customer-centric. So in a way, we're taking technology and wrapping it all the way back around to just good, old-fashioned, traditional branding and communications. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, sort of on that front, and given your expertise, um, there is an upcoming event specifically for uh, marketing and doing networking, a workshop. Uh, tell us right. about that. So this event is called I Connect You Hawaii. I think it's a Brody, uh, Brody Goshi mm-hmm. project, and he's partnered with Argosy U, who, which we like very much as the Bisdom Foundation. We work with them a lot of many things. So they've assembled a panel of nine people, um, to do various aspects of what it is to do digital marketing. And oh, there's some traditional stuff in there as well. Um, both Tim and I will be there. So Tim's doing a, a bit of SEO work. I'm doing uh, branding for the Internet. And I think it's going to be super good fun. Now, you, you talked about branding for the Internet. You talked about uh, Super Geeks. I am kind of want to just step back a little bit about the, so your involvement with Super Geeks. Is that a partnership? Are you getting sort of yes. personally business business Lee involved, uh, <laughs> business Lee. I mean, that's that's a, we, a, we a are term. we are dating. Oh, dating. Yeah, so now, we've got a, a a partnership that is a, a team of two companies. Story, actually, three companies: our, Story Manager, Super Geeks, and BitHut.com, which is our hosting company. Okay, okay. So when I think of Super Geeks, I usually think of the guys that go out there and maybe fix your computer, your printer, yeah. or your network. Right. Yeah. So they're very much into the guts, the nuts and bolts of your network mm-hmm. or your computing platform. Right. How do you weave into it now this sort of internet branding? Well, so they're kind of, over the last few years, gone also into IT. So they do some very large companies locally here mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. support IT services in-house. And also, they do websites. So, for example, ABC Stores, Martin MacArthur, I think Ren Spooner. Um, okay, Riggs, so they don't you know. just do the technical; they do the creative. Yeah, part too. and and some of those sites are extremely technical because these are retail sites that are you know on Magento. So if you know anything about web platforms, there's like most of the world is on WordPress, which is good information sites. About mm-hmm. two thirds of mm-hmm. all websites are there, but the other third are split up, and a vast majority of those, the retail sites, go on specific platforms like Magento, mm-hmm. which is use built for retail. So and, they these are so, mm-hmm. in that. and these are obviously some of the things that people can learn at this event. 
Correct, yes. So who are some of the other speakers that uh, are going to be on the program? I mean, certainly yeah. with you, you're a powerhouse. That's great. But uh, who, what other um, people will they be able to hear Well, from? so our good friend, Jody Uihara, who has uh, gone into becoming a socialite. She's she's a, um, a social media person now. Mm-hmm. She's doing a great job at that. Of course, Brody Goshi is there. Um, We've got uh, Kimberly Perez-Holtz, who is at Argosy University. She recently, I think, was like the first princess of Miss uh, Married Hawaii or something like oh, that. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, come, come for the eye candy alone, <laughs> right? Then we've got Kristen Robinson, okay. who's uh, a design specialist. Uh, Jeffrey Bow, who is a, uh, a life coach. Um, and Charlene uh Propius Williams, mm-hmm, who is mm-hmm. a uh, event marketing person, and Angelina Campos, who does coaching as well. So, is this a series of presentations? Is it a panel conversation? They are a series of presentations. So, this event starts at eight in the morning. I actually don't know what time I'm scheduled to speak, but I would guess that it's probably later in the day because because you're fun. worth sticking around for. Oh man, I hope so. <laughs> so, can you give a little? tidbit, a teaser of what it is that you might start to have your presentation on? Yeah, absolutely. So so the thing about branding for the internet, people think of branding, first of all, they don't know what it is, right? Really simple. Brand story. It's the story of your company. And your story is manifest in many different ways, from the name of your company to your logo, to your Mm -hmm. vision statement, to any way that you do marketing and communications. Uh, It could be your customer service. It it goes through everything that you do. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that's really important that I'm going to talk about is naming. So the thing Mm -hmm. about naming, you know, like picking a website name, you have to be really careful of what's called camel casing. That's where you you lock up words together, right? Because internet addresses don't have spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if you Mm -hmm. own a record store like Ray's Hits Mm -hmm. and you want to go, oh, I'm Ray'sHits.com, it spells other things when you if you take start at a, the S, for example. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Ray, right on, and he does right on, this right. active verb. Well, that's right, not right, so right, good, right, right. right? In the very early days, when when we did a site uh, for the city of Oakland, I had a whole list of URLs for them to choose from, mm-hmm. and I threw it in just for the hex of it. Mm-hmm. So at the time, Jerry Brown was the mayor, so he's very howly guy, right? And and I was like, there's no way they can use this name. If they had an African American mayor, it would have been fine. So Web Oakland was one of the names. And so they picked Web Oakland. And I said, you guys, you can't do that. And they said, no, we are definitely doing this. And I said, that was a joke. And they're like, well, how is that a joke? And I said, well, because that was when Ebonics was really popular. So if you think about it, it could be we be Oakland. And which is, you know, that's like the African-American version of Pigeon, right? Uh-huh. Not the right incarnation of their uh-huh. brand. It might have worked perhaps for a band, but maybe, maybe not so. for that particular yeah. initiative. I can see what you're saying. So you mm-hmm, have to be mm-hmm, real careful mm-hmm. of those things. And, you know, there's a lot of rules of thumb. Like, generally speaking, you want a short name. Sure. Right? Because if you spell it out too long, nobody can spell it. It's not intuitive. They forget what it means. Um, uh, the other thing is, if you make a name that's too long, you can't get it on an avatar. There's right? that too. You know, so that's when you, when you take your brand and you go to a logo... Nowadays, logos should be square aspect ratio. There's no longer the golden tri- uh, rectangle. Well, it's got to be round square. is becoming a thing now. That's the current design. Round thing. is a square aspect ratio, right, right? Right. So round is a design tool for that. But you so, got to get there with with grace and speed, and you know, blow up the box. Like oftentimes, you can construct a logo that's bigger than the box that it's in. Mm-hmm. So that the graphic designers have a lot to say on that. And then, of course, you have to get to keywords. So as you get down to the food chain of food chain of your name, 
you've got to look at all the words that you want to be found as. Mm -hmm. And so now you're all of a sudden talking to machines, and that's what search engine optimization is about, and people at the same time because you have to be intuitive. So all told, the art of branding is become actually more important because your website is first stop, right? That's the first place people vet you, and they need to be able to find you, and they need to be able to impressed by what you're doing. So, Steve, if somebody wants to pick up these and other lessons, when is this conference, where is it happening, and how can someone sign up? October 6th. Uh, it's a Tuesday. starts at 8 o'clock in the morning, goes to 5. It's at Argosy University. And uh, let's see, they've got they've they've got an address here, but can you just put it on yep, your? Yeah, we'll definitely yeah. put it up on our show notes. Put it up on your show notes. I think that'll work better then. Or or you go to iConnectU Hawaii. Sounds All right. good. Thanks, Steve, for joining us. Thanks, guys. And of course, now joining us here in the studio is Sandy Park. She's from the High Tech Development Corporation to tell us about an upcoming advanced manufacturing conference. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe, Sandy. Hey, aloha, guys. Thank you for having me. So this is a very intriguing uh, title that you have, Make Stuff, Get Funded. What is this all about? Yeah, so we came up with this title because we are linking the Hawaii SBIR conference. Mm -hmm. Small Business Innovation Research. The grant program Mm -hmm. with advanced manufacturing. Okay, when we talk about advanced manufacturing, what are we referring to? We are referring to the latest in technology in 3D printing, um, manufacturing processing lines, data management, data acquisitions from all the different types of manufacturing equipment that companies use now to process their prototyping. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we are, for that part of the conference, it's a four-day conference, but two separate types of presentations. Mm -hmm. But on the advanced manufacturing side, developing your prototype can help you get funded through the SBIR program. So that's why the linkage between make stuff and get funded. Now, we've previously talked about light manufacturing, and now we're talking about this type of manufacturing, but it's actually part of a continuum. Um, How prominent or how much growth are people seeing in this space for Hawaii? Well, I think Hawaii, it's still brand new. Mm. Manufacture, we don't, we don't have large manufacturers here in Hawaii. Our main, most of our manufacturers are food manufacturers. Um, jams and jellies or people like Aloha Shoyu, mm-hmm. um, the Aloha bottling, tofu, yeah. tofu uh, the bottling companies that are bottling waters and sodas. Um, we even have some that are doing, uh, technology manufacturing, very, you know, small prototyping of their hardware. So bringing in the expertise, this advanced manufacturing part of the program is very educational. We want to show the community that this is the possibilities, that the experts that we're bringing in um, have so much to offer, and it's it's going to be very, very interesting. So some of the the headliners are Siemens, PLM. Mm -hmm. So their software is being used in so many different areas from healthcare to energy to even Formula One race cars. Now, are you looking for the sort of one, two guys working in the garage kind of participants? Or are you looking at a fairly sophisticated tech company that's now now sort of venturing into a, a manufacturing mode? I think the uh, second choice. The latter. The latter, uh-huh. right. So, so are, there, are there typical companies in Hawaii that are fairly along that path to, you know, they've been around, you know, they've actually built some product, mm-hmm. they're 
testing out some maybe new methodologies or processes for manufacturing? I mean, what would be some examples of, the, of those companies? Well, some of our um, larger or more experienced SBIR companies like Oceanet <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are doing their, their, their research and development is so diverse. They go from sensors to software mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to um, yeah, we had products that are doing stuff like drying your boots, you know, in less than the time it takes right. to throw it in a dryer. And I in mean, fact, tonight Ocean is hosting a uh, open house. So right, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so their product, they are so diverse. Mm-hmm. So for them to actually learn more about the the types of manufacturing that can help speed them along mm-hmm. to get to the the whole point is to get to commercialization mm-hmm. and getting their product to market. Now this has not been offered before. I mean, no. this is like, like a first time. This is the first I mean, you guys because you've been doing this program for. Uh, I mean, SBIR has been managed out of uh, HDDC for a while, and then the yes. Innovate Hawaii. I mean, so what was it that really kind of what was a light bulb that went off that said, "Hey, we got to bring some of these guys in, experts, so that we can." advance or, or accelerate the, pro, the, the the timeline for our companies to kind of get to that manufacturing? Well, HCC, under Innovate Hawaii, we have another federal program called the Manufacturing Extension Partnership Program. Mm-hmm. So that's a program out of NIST to help the manufacturing companies um, grow business development mentoring, lean process mentoring, energy assessments, as well as finding equipment for them to help them with their manufacturing and processing. So in discussions with some of the manufacturing companies and also through a partnership with the chamber, um, we found that, you know, a lot of that information is missing. And, you know, learning what's new and um, exciting you know, to bring it here to Hawaii, we thought would be a very good opportunity. Now, you said manufacturing is a relatively small sector in Hawaii, but SBIR funding has been around for some time. I certainly have seen some of the events put on. Um, for someone who's not familiar with it, I mean, how big is this program in terms of uh, its scope nationally versus Hawaii? The Small Business Innovation Research Grant Program is about $2.2 billion. Every federal agency has a pocket of that money. Of course, the largest would be the Department of Defense, Mm -hmm. but every one of them has an SBIR program. So for the um, Hawaii program, we have a matching program. So if you have won a phase one from the feds, we can match another 50%. So is there a number that is allocated to Hawaii from this SBIR pot, or is it just whoever applies, that's who we fund? Whoever applies. So, it But could, they have to be a Hawaii company. Right, right, right. So it's not like we've got $500 million and you know we need to fund these companies. It's more like whoever comes in, With they project. qualify, yeah. and, but it could be $1 million here, maybe this year. Maybe $5 million the next the year. The phase one funding that we have through the state of Hawaii is 520000 per fiscal year. Mm-hmm, ah, gotcha. mm-hmm. Well, if somebody wanted to learn more about this for this first time ever as a manufacturing conference, where is it happening? When and where can someone sign up? The uh, conference is four days, but it is broken down into two sections. The advanced manufacturing is the make stuff. That starts on October the 20th and 21st. The get funding portion Mm -hmm. is the SBIR portion. That's on the 22nd and the 23rd. And somebody can go to all four if they want. You can go to all four. The early bird ends today. Good. Ah. So sign up now. Where? um, At hcc.org slash SBIR.
We'll definitely put that up on the show notes. Thanks, Sandy, for joining us. Thank you. See you there. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Ted Ralston and Mike Elliott and talk about drone education. What's driving the need for UAV training? We can cover that. Unfortunately, today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take your calls. But, of course, we still hope that you enjoy the program. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Joining us today is Ted Ralston and Mike Elliott. Ted is an ex-aerospace industry executive and a well-respected consultant on the unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs. Mike, meanwhile, retired from the U.S. Navy after serving for nearly 23 years, and he is now the co-founder of Drone Services Hawaii, which sells personal drones, builds custom SAR drones, and he's mo- he was motivated by the devastation he continues to see in the Asia-Pacific region. And of course, what is the latest status of commercial drone flight? And of course, today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today, but we want to welcome everybody to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks, Bert. Hey, thanks, thanks guys. Ryan. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, of course, uh, you know, we've been talking about drones. We've been following the activity of uh, this sort of, um, I wouldn't say new. I mean, model aircrafts have been around, flying flying model aircrafts. But the price point for getting involved with sort of these uh, quadcopters, I mean, they're getting very affordable. People are putting cameras on them. And every year there is just more opportunity to uh, get some really cool aerial views of various uh, events. Uh, you know, it could even be for disasters or what have you. As as this grows, what is the kind of growing situation about experience and and getting the right kind of training? There's FAA now. There's a, a commercial certification. Ted, I mean, what's the 2015? landscape looking like right now? That's a great question, uh, Bert. First of all, one thing I like to make a uh, comment every time I talk about this is that we use the word drones because the media has picked it up. <laughs> it's an easy word to say. Right, right, right. Actually, you have a drone at your house. It's called your washing machine. 
You set some dials, you put some soap in, push the go button, and it does the laundry for you. That's interesting. I've never heard anybody, okay. you, Ted, tell me that my washing machine is a drone. It is a drone, right. Okay. It, it, uh, what we're speaking of here in the world of unmanned air vehicles are remotely piloted vehicles, or the pilot is actually in the loop doing something active, managing the flight. He just isn't in the airplane. He's on the ground. And that essentially separates unmanned air systems from drones. Drones are somewhat are, are totally automatic. And, and you don't have any recall on them, necessarily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, unmanned air systems are totally uh, man-supervised. Even though there may be a lot of automation, uh, it's a significant difference. And that also affects the way the laws are written, because the laws require you to have a pilot on the airplane. In this case, the pilot's on the ground. So the FAA has to transfer all of its rules and regulations to allow, to uh, enable operations with a pilot not on board, but the pilot's still there. Mm-hmm. So now, piloting is a really imp- important part of this activity. Absolutely. A lot of um, the pilots I know kind of bristle at the idea of unmanned aerial vehicles because they are very engaged and paying very close attention. And in fact, it is the human element that they feel is the is the benefit and the reason why uh, these are powerful tools. But of course, um, the last time we like to do drone updates every at least a couple times a year, and here we are. I know that the last time we had you, we were talking about, so where are those federal aviation? When will they flip that switch? How is that process going? It's going good. The uh, FAA is actually uh, moving so fast, that uh, faster than anybody could ever imagine in terms of exemptions, in terms of waivers, in terms of allowing uh, development to occur. And they're also uh, pushing forward on some laws that are some potential laws that will uh, make it clear and make it uh, more easy to execute. But the FAA is really at the behest of Congress. That's how it works. So mm-hmm. Congress tells the FAA what to do. And uh, there's been some strong motivation from Congress to go make, go make by exemptions, make it possible to get drones out there. And that's what we're seeing today. So it's, it's uh, whether you're in public service or whether you're in, in commercial service, uh, it's possible to operate drones today uh, for a living, for yes. that matter. Because I know Mike is uh, I was about those say, exemptions. Yeah, and uh, we, we recently received ours. We had uh, applied for more of a basic one, and we're going to amend it over time with some other uh, options and opportunities. But what a lot of people come to us for, you see uh, people wanting to do closed set motion picture. You have to have exemption and you have to have certain uh, paperwork to be able to do that. Uh, aerial inspection. That's a huge market out there for aerial inspection that can save tremendous amounts of money for a lot of people. Uh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, there's uh, search and rescue aspects also. Agriculture. Uh, there's, there's huge savings in agriculture that can be uh, gleaned from that. Um, also other disasters where you have, um, say, uh, chemical spills. You can put sensors on these drones, and you can have uh, fire departments deploy these and actually detect where some of these uh, plumes are that aren't visible to the naked eye. So uh, they don't put people at risk. Uh, they're saving money, and they uh, save time. So I, I, you were talking about um, the exemption. So what I'm always curious about is the 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 creation of the – permanent framework but what you're talking about is in the inter in the interim while this permanent framework is coming together that you can apply to say in this interim I can with this application and with these qualifications I can operate and so Mike you said you were able to get is that called a section 333 waiver right that's that's the current uh, framework that it's under is this 333 uh, exemption uh, some of the basic requirements so you have to have uh, pilot in command visual observer the pilot in command has to have a pilot's license. Doesn't have to be a full private pilot's license. Can be recreational pilot. Uh, you're usually limited to daylight. Um, you're limited to uh, visual line of sight uh, for operations, 
you still have the requirements of maintaining your distances from uh, airports, uh, restrictions for national parks, stadium events, and things like that. But there are other uh, COAs that you can apply for that would allow you to fly for specific operations in some of those other areas. And the FAA very much wants to encourage and is working hard to bring commercial operations to the public. You know, an important uh, consideration on the exemptions is the exemption process will always be there, even when the rules are finally promulgated that allow the small UASs to be certified. The operation beyond line of sight, the operation at heavier weights, the operation at other domains will still be available by except by uh, exemption. So exemption is kind of an interesting device. It's somewhat of a of a way to recognize the fact that the rules weren't written with everything in mind. Right, and an right. exemption allows you to get around that. A good example is a four-engine airplane having to be taxied or t- uh, flown back to base with only three engines. Well, it wasn't designed for that, but you can you can get by just fine if you control the, the flight. So, Ted, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, the FAA is sort of responsible, but they don't make the laws. Congress makes the laws. Uh, but the Congress has encouraged the FAA to get more activity happening with with uh, the UAVs. What is it that the what is it that Congress has done to do that encouragement? I mean, it wasn't a law, right? Ah, I mean, what okay. happened? What <laughs> happened in in twenty fifteen that really helped move that along? Okay, let's talk about uh, U.S. Government one hundred and one, and that's how the <laughs> okay, government works. Okay, okay? <laughs> and basically, what happens is uh, commercial interests uh, with for good reason. Uh, gather together and influence Congress in a direction that says, hey, there's a better way to do this than what you're doing now. And we'd like to express that to you and, and show how U.S. competitiveness is improved if we follow this path. And if you, if you Congress, can help, with, help the FAA find a way through that thicket, we'll, we'll all be better. And that's what, that's what happened here. The, 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 the doctrine is called equivalent safety. If it's safer to do something with a, a drone or a UAV, than with a current helicopter. And a good example is, as Mike said, uh, movie sets. Having a real helicopter with a cameraman hanging out the side has a level of risk to it. Mm -hmm. Having a small drone with a GoPro in it do that same job is a lot less risk. And there was a recent crash on a movie set down in South America for a new Tom Cruise movie uh, where the helicopter crashed uh, filming just doing exactly that. So the drone does offer, uh, it's a tool. It's not a replacement for everything. Um, it, it doesn't fit in every category, but it is a tool that allows um, some unique opportunity in a wide variety of uh, uh, applications. Okay, so so you said what equivalent? You said equivalent. Equivalent safety, safety is okay. the doctrine. So this um, U.S. Congress 101, which is a good starting point. I I, I would often think that you know 101 is they got to pass a law. So this wasn't really a law. This is um, a docket that's already in existence. It's called equivalent safety. And they were able to were they able to modify that? Document? Yes. Well, the, oh. the exemption process allows you to take advantage by equivalent safety mm-hmm. of better ways to do the job. And mm-hmm. if you can do it by a drone, it's a better way. Whether it's movies or flare stack inspection, power line inspection, agriculture oh. inspection, any one of those things where it's a safer uh, safer overall accomplishment to do it with the drone. What's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. And so the exemption process allows that to occur. Okay. Now, Mike, what's the difference between someone like you who's gone through this process, which I imagine has steps, has forms, et cetera, um, things that you need to demonstrate, and someone who does go to the Amazon.com and pick up a $1,200 uh, phantom drone? What's the differentiator now that you well, have a certification? As as uh, Well, we're, we did it for uh, commercial operations. Mm-hmm. When you... 
uh, have an exemption, you're operating as a commercial operator, it allows you the opportunity to uh, insure yourself properly for flight operations. Uh, it allows yourself, obviously, to charge a professional rate uh, so that you're not doing the, hey, get the teenager down the street, give him 20 bucks to <laughs> shoot a picture of my house so I can sell it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it allows to, um, you know, those are, those are some of those aspects. Also, it's the flight safety aspect that Ted uh, mentioned. The FAA very much wants uh, the operators to be very aware that they're operating uh, an unmanned aircraft in airspace and that they're, uh, what those rules and restrictions are and that uh, part of this process is being well-informed um, of what, what those restrictions are. So is the certification being given to you by the FAA? I mean, is, I, who do you go through to get this certification? I, w- I wouldn't say it's, necessarily, it's, it's not yet a certification. It's an exemption. Exemption, exemption. Okay, right. Okay, exemption. So the exemption has certain requirements in it, um, where you can fly, when you can fly, altitude, airspeed, weight, uh, being, you know, like I said, having a pilot in command, a visual observer, so the, they take the existing rules, they write the exemption to allow you to fly, but then here are the requirements that you mm-hmm. have. For example, um, you're only allowed to fly the aircraft that you have listed on your exemption, but mm-hmm. you can apply mm-hmm. for more types of drones because every other month there's a new drone out mm-hmm. there. So you have to be able to do that. You can apply for COAs to operate in areas that you um, might not normally be able to uh, fly in or that you had not written into your initial application. So there's an amendment process that's available to And And it is the FAA that off, uh, gives yes. out the e- exemptions? Yes. Now, are they, are they backlogged? I mean, what is, it, what is the uh, turnaround so time for that? We, uh, <laughs> we also uh, work, we've helped a lot of uh, upstart, uh, some upstart businesses here in Hawaii and some on the mainland too. We uh, actually write them. Um, it's uh, it's been taken about 150 days. If you have no real issues and you're not doing anything that's too uh, extreme, or you asking for something that is not yet uh, ruled on or regulated, mm-hmm. it's been about 150 days. So you got to give maybe about half total. a half of your six months to. Uh, well, there's 90 days of that where it has to sit on a regulations.gov website where it does nothing. It just sits there for public comment. So I that's see. a that's a big part of it, really. But interesting uh, enough, the uh, FAA had not anticipated that the exemption process would be very interesting to many people. And uh, right right now, there's 3,000 of those uninterested people who have applied for uh, exemptions. Nationally? Nationally, nationally, yeah. 3,000 are in the hopper right now, and 1,500 have been awarded. So just imagine, I think about 15 in Hawaii, as a matter of fact, including yours. I'm not sure what the total number is in Hawaii right now, but there's there's a few. There's more. Mm -hmm. Now, Ted, we we are talking about regulation and rules, and I know that it it continues to be a hot topic. Um, There was legislation introduced in Hawaii. There will probably be more legislation introduced in the upcoming session just here in Hawaii. There was recently a very sweeping law from California, California Senator Hannah Beth Jackson, who actually said it was while she was on vacation in Hawaii and got buzzed by a drone that she said, I'm going to pass a law that says you can't fly over private property. And privacy is always a question, for example. But how do you foresee this this patchwork of different uh, you know, counties and states trying to create regulations where, as there is still a significant and established framework from the FAA point of view, to put these regulations in place? Well, actually, that's a good question. Uh, we had just had that discussion, I guess, pretty much every day this week with different groups, including <laughs> the Rotary in Waikiki yeah. today. And uh, the FAA rules are going to be about uh, airworthiness and about pilot certification and about operations. They really won't have a lot to do with the privacy and the respect for uh, public rights. Those mm-hmm. are controlled elsewhere. They're already in the laws right. and this sort of thing. 
So the, that's, where the, that's where the states and the counties and municipalities come into the game. They want to make sure they provide that additional level of awareness and protection. There's another side to this that I think is worth mentioning to, uh, to our audience here. And once again, I, I trust uh, uh, Ryan and, and Bert that our radio audience can see this chart I'm holding up oh, here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you I can see it. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is actually called a sectional chart. And any aviator would be quite familiar with this. This is a chart that shows, it looks like a map, but it really has all the information and data that a pilot would think about and would know about when he's planning a flight or planning an operation. Uh, it doesn't look like a typical uh, uh, road map at all, uh, other than the fact that it's got a, a geopolitical uh, a lay down on it. Mm-hmm. And this represents the kind of thinking that the aviation community and the FAA are, have embedded in their mind. And what we find is that the drone community comes more from the video game orientation or the the get-the-camera-shot orientation of a photographer. And the gap that we have to fill is between those two ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. How do we allow that photographer to operate when he doesn't have this basic awareness of this chart I'm holding up to your radio audience again? (laughs) And and that's where education comes into the game. So there are uh, some... Excellent programs coming forth that are going to try to provide that level of education and insight. But insight, awareness, education, open conversation is what we're going to have to get into here to to get that. And I would uh, say, too, on the the privacy issue, uh, when you see, uh, I'd say 99.9% of people that are out there operating drones are trying to do so in a in a manner that is uh, you know safe. You, the stories you see are the point one percent because there's hey I need a filler story for the news. Find me a drone story, but at the same time, what these people are using they're using wide angle cameras. Uh, there have been a number of uh, folks that have posted stuff that shows you know here I am at twenty feet, fifty feet, a hundred feet, and then you you know you just are not seeing that level of detail. They're not zoom capable cameras, and at the same time, I don't see any uh, pending laws. You know, to ban high-power telescopes in condominiums in Waikiki or 500-millimeter lenses on Mm -hmm. cameras on the beach. Mango-picking poles with cameras on them. Exactly. (laughs) Mango-picking poles with cameras on them? If you can get high enough. (laughs) Well, for example, the the, the California senator, and I wanted you to address this, Uh said she was not just that they photographed her with a drone in her backyard or whatever, but that they were eavesdropping on her conversation. Now, how good do you think the microphones are on a quadcopter mic? Well, I know that... uh, when people were initially attaching GoPros to drones early on, all you heard was the rotors on the just a continuous buzz. You're not going to hear anything. And uh, the other more modern drones don't have GoPros on them. They just have a regular camera with no, there's no microphone. Um, just because there's somebody flying doesn't mean they're actually taking a picture or shooting a video. They might be you know, just initially taking off, framing a shot. And then on the other part of your uh, story about that law... Uh, the governor, uh, state of California, actually vetoed it, and for good reason, because he saw it as a detriment to the drone industry that was uh, burgeoning in California, and just like we're trying to do here in the state of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there's a common sense piece, and I think that's what gets lost in a lot of this, is that uh, common sense behavior uh, with any lawful product is, is really the cornerstone of, of operating a drone properly. And if you do so irresponsibly, then uh, there are remedies for that. You know, the, the uh, experience in California is a good example. That was at the state level where a, a general ban could not be created. But in certain municipalities, like the Port of Los Angeles, there is an absolute zero-tolerance ban. And that's an economic issue. The Port of uh, Long Beach in L.A. pumps something like uh, $5 billion a day through them. They can't afford to have a vessel miss anything about its uh, transit through the port. 
And there's too many people out there flying drones and putting them on YouTube of a, tra- you know, tracking a freighter into the into the harbor. So the uh, harbor police have put an absolute no tolerance drone. Nobody, even the fire and police, can't use drones uh, because they can't tell who's legitimate and who's not. So just ban them all. Mm-hmm. That's a very narrow. Uh, response, you might say, to a behavior situation. So we've got to fix the behavior situation right. and the understanding right. first, and then these things can be loosened up. But uh, it is a challenge to execute uh, laws at a state level versus a county level versus a municipality level because the perspectives are different and the needs are different. And I think it's an understanding issue, too. Uh, you know, it's uh, our legislators need to be fully aware of some of the technology that's out there, what is capable and, uh, you know, there's, there's two sides to this. There's, uh, but I think that's a big piece of it also. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll ask you. I mean, I've, I've continued to covet uh, my own quadcopter, but fortunately the expense and my clear inability, my clear lack of manual dexterity is keeping <laughs> me away from doing that. But the question immediately arises is it is as easy as clicking the one-click button on Amazon to get one, but it certainly sounds like, especially when it makes the news because of bad decisions yeah. by people who don't even intend to be malicious – where you know, how do you prepare well, that's, people that's for a, that? That's a great. Uh, it it's funny you say that because uh, you know sometimes we when we talk to people they call us email and say you know we're we want to be more than a click on Amazon because you can just buy on Amazon and it shows up on your doorstep and you know there's a little startup guide and you put the battery in and away you go. Um, but there's the um, the rules that the FAA has already laid out where you can't, you know, uh, five miles major airports, uh, 400 feet in altitude, your 55-pound weight limit, no national parks, plus or minus three hours of uh, stadium events, um, you know, not flying over large crowds. It's not uh, – that's one of the ones that, you know – but just sit there that's and just – a good guideline. Yeah, just sure. kind of common sense uh, to talk about some of these basic rules and guidelines – um, and then where, and then send them to where they can find additional information. Uh, I share out videos uh, that are up on YouTube that some people have posted, uh, informational flyers, and they really appreciate that kind of uh, feedback because it helps um, them know that there's somebody that is willing to uh, talk with them and um, assist them in doing something that they really want to do and get out there and shoot great photography well, so, and video here so in So there's, there's probably a growing need for, for education, classes. And I think, uh, Mike, I mean, what you're, what you're referring to are some of the uh, classes that you offer. But now there's probably uh, an assortment of things that people could choose from. How do you go about choosing which one to take and what's going to get you the most knowledge about you know your yeah. new. Well, we we don't have. I mean, we uh, drone services. Why we don't have uh, classes per se. Oh, but okay. leading into the education piece, I think what uh, really what we're getting to is that we need to uh, looking at incorporating some of this into our schools. Uh, if we train our youth here in Hawaii, we can educate them in a, a myriad of technologies that could uh, help to build a, a new. Uh, industry and in, that Hawaii could be a hub for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the STEM programs, uh, working with UH, working with other groups that want to um, bring this capability uh, to our youth is, uh, I think, an avenue to a future employment opportunity here in the Hawaiian Islands. Well, you know, what we want to do is I want to maybe talk about uh, education. And, and, Ted, I think you probably are much closer to development of appropriate coursework for uh, drone operators. I want to hold that thought for the moment. Uh, we'll be right back after this uh, short break to continue our conversation with both 
Ted Ralston and Mike Elliott about UAVs. What resources are available to be a responsible drone operator? Of course, please note that today's program is pre-recorded, so unfortunately we can't take your calls. But we always welcome your feedback. You can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You are listening to Bitemarks Cafe. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we are talking to Ted Ralston and Mike Elliott about opportunities and education surrounding unmanned aircraft systems or drones. And I think that's becoming a very uh, important topic. Of course, that's what we were kind of leading to at the the, uh, start of this break. And Ted, we want to kind of bring you in and and really get into the education of, of drone operations. I mean, where are we at? And you talk about these gaps. Are we able to fill these gaps? I mean, what's what's going on with the education of operating? You know, there are so many dimensions in the future of education uh, as a as a way into the uh, successful, sustainable business of drones. Uh, it it somewhat follows the airplane business, but goes much bigger than that. If you go to air, if you go to get flight training, you can get flight training at a community college. You can get flight training at a commercial operator. You can get flight training at a club. Uh, but that's about flying an airplane. Mm-hmm, we're talking mm-hmm. in drones. We're talking about the application or the utility the drone provides, which could be critical information for public safety, for search and rescue, uh, for uh, beach sand erosion, for invasive species, or many, many reasons. So it's really the application that almost drives the education. We still need the flight safety aspects and the flight operations and flight management. But beyond that, we really need to know how to extract information from what's being sensed and make it useful to people who are making decisions. For example, in a, in a, in a disaster operations issue, it's going to be the innocent commander who needs the information. If it's an invasive species issue, it's going to be DNLR or some organization there that needs the information. So we've got a it, – it's a whole different dimension beyond just what we have in the world of, uh, of aviation. Mm-hmm. So in our uh, – we've uh – become a subsidiary of a larger company we had founded with this drone services USA we build building search and rescue and cargo drop cargo lift drones to be able to drop payloads specifically for search and rescue but another big aspect that we get asked about quite frequently like I said is how do you use like Ted was saying how do you use that data what do you uh, what do you do with it 
So in discussion with some folks um, in uh, dealing with civil defense, you know, we look at the, uh, there's like 83 fire stations, I think, on the island of Oahu. If each one of them had a drone and say post-tsunami, post-hurricane, uh, and were able to uh, fly locally where they're at, uh, bring that data back to civil defense, and then they could rapidly make an overall assessment to where they needed to put critical resources, uh, it, that's a tremendous opportunity that you wouldn't have otherwise because the airport may be unavailable. Mm-hmm. Now, you bring up a, an excellent point. Uh, you know, when there is an annual exercise called Makani Pahili, it's a, it's a hurricane exercise. Uh, I was involved with it in 2014. Uh, I got to do a, a, a sort of a tour of it in 2015. And, of course, every year it sort of is brought up. There's going to be drones. There's going to be uh, the opportunity to get aerial views but to the extent where it's now getting incorporated, like you described, you know, with the with the uh, fire department or or first responders, where are we at to actually get it incorporated into the workflow of what they do? Well, it's being it is being done. Uh, a lot of places actually and uh, overseas uh, are actually doing this now. Europe is really taking a lead on a lot of areas. Um, accident investigation. Uh, we see this in why you know say there's a, a accident with a fatality on H one, the roads basically shut down and primarily because they're doing this accident investigation. In Europe, uh, in some places, they're actually using drones to take aerials of the scene, to, and then they can measure everything that they need to measure in the computer after the fact, so they're able to rapidly reopen the roads. Um, it's a training piece, too. So mm-hmm. you talked about the hurricane exercise, uh, but prior to that, you'd have to have a process in place by which drones and manned aircraft uh, can uh, deconflict and operate with each other, that's a, another future right. technology piece that the FAA is working to also. Uh, but it's a training aspect. You can't just do it uh, the day of the event. You have to lead up to it with a lot of training uh, with individuals that would be operating drones. And then there's awareness of uh, manned aircraft that would be operating in the airspace also. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, can, I can certainly see the issue about training the first responders, the people whose job it is to work at these scenes. And I think we'll get to that uh, as well. But to bring it back to sort of the education piece and more of the consumer-facing piece, you, you talk about accident investigations. It had entered the popular consciousness a month ago that, that private operators, hobbyists flying drones, interfered with traffic uh, observations in California during the wildfire and that it was a contributing factor to people's cars going up in flames. So you talk about the gap. And um, I love that when people contact you or contact other, I would imagine, aircraft, uh, radio control craft clubs, there is they focus very heavily on the education piece. But it sounds to me like there needs to be something more institutional, a little more established, kind of built into um, how people are trained to use these things or any technology, I would say, responsibly. I mean, uh, Mike, you can't teach everybody because they not everybody calls you. So how do you see um, people being educated more about using drones responsibly? I, I know that uh, I think the FAA is wanting to lead towards some some type of codified training program that could be out there for folks, primarily for commercial use. But um, I think uh, you know responsible retailers should take it upon themselves to educate their their customers. If uh, you know, we go out and do flight demos and help people initially fly. We do it at no cost, just because it's the right thing to do. Um, do you go but to not schools? everybody does that. Like maybe um, young uh, young kids? Uh, we will. We've had some folks. My uh, partner over in Lanai, George Purdy, has uh, done some stuff with the schools over there. There's a huge interest in bringing uh, a STEM-type program for drones you know, to the island of Lanai. Uh, we see the youth of Hawaii as being a, a future uh, workforce in this industry and a lot of in 
manufacturing in uh, programming because a lot of this is a lot of app development. Obviously, uh, a lot of times you see used on uh, tablet devices, computer programming for drones. Um, also, the data processing piece for the information that you got from the drone and how it's utilized. So there's a, a wide open market for uh, for the youth here in Hawaii and, you know, getting involved in STEM and other programs, uh, getting it to the schools is key. Well, so, yeah, you brought up STEM earlier. You, you brought it up now. Uh, I want to hear from both of you, what would be the appropriate entree into education, K-12, to uh, you know, perhaps as a vehicle f- with with STEM, but in order for it to be incorporated with STEM, it has to be already developed as a program or as a, um, let's say, you know, there's al- already a let's say a competition or some sort of predefined curriculum event. Right. 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 Curriculum competition that, is a great way yeah. to uh, <laughs> expose a lot of people. But are to we are we at an early stage of talking about this? Or very are, much are there- so. Uh, Ted is working some uh, some. Uh, Contacts with some some very high interest in doing this. Uh, we've been contacted from a couple different entities here on the island about uh, how can we do this? How can we develop a program? Uh, whether it's STEM, and then also some other uh, agencies that see this as a can you can you teach our kids how to build a drone? Can we have a mission for them that they build to, and then they complete the mission? Uh, is is well, the you know, measure I mean, of success for the We event. always cover stuff like VEX and First Robotics and Botball and Lego League and all those. I mean, <clears throat> is there a – I mean, there's all, also the underwater uh, uh, vehicle competitions. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there well, how one? About a, how about a search and rescue competition exactly. the, using uh, dummies and this sort of thing? Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's, I think one of the questions you raised a bit ago was uh, kind of pokes at the issue. Is, is the drone an entity into itself that has – looking for a, a, something to do, or is the mission what drives the use of the drone? The mission being uh, public safety, mission being disaster operations, search and rescue, invasive species, uh, on and on, uh, marine uh, biomass technology and such. It, in my mind, in the experience I've had here so far, it, it points more and more to the existing missions that people are, are doing because they're funded to do those missions. There is doctrine in place that does those missions. Mm. We just make the mission better with the UAV. And a great example came from your partner on Lanai, uh, George Purdy. We're talking about SAR, search and rescue, recognizing that in Hawaii it's basically search and recovery, not search and rescue because you can't get there fast enough to actually do a rescue. Oftentimes it's recovery after the fact. Mm -hmm. But with drones, as Mike said, with small portable drones that are available to the people in the field, you could get the information about the potential victim much faster, and maybe you actually do have search and rescue, and or you actually rescue the guy yeah. because Deliver the timing supplies. has been in your favor. Right, and we've so. we've seen this with some some demonstrations that we've uh, had uh, at, at talked through where you know you have a maybe a team on the ground doing a traditional search and rescue, uh, hiking through the jungles. We've been and then you know put the drone up and put the drone up. We have uh, you know an infrared camera. We have an optical camera with zoom capability. Put the drone up, go. Mm-hmm. Now go find them. And there was a recent story here. There was a guy that was lost for three or four days. Uh, somebody went and flew a drone for like 20 minutes and found him. Uh, you know, this is this is becoming a common theme again and again and again. So putting this technology with, with high-end sensors in the hands of uh, you know, first responders is uh, just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Ted, you are involved with doing a, a course for the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center, NDPTC. Tell us a little bit about what you're working into this, this uh, UAV 
training? Certainly. Um, first of all, NDPTC, uh, which I've learned to pronounce that acronym, which is a tough one, uh, <laughs> National Disaster Preparedness Training Center, kind of right down the street in Honolulu, is a component of the National Disaster Preparedness Center, mm-hmm. which is su- uh, supported by FEMA. This is actually being performed by UH uh, here in this area. In any case, uh, the penetration of UAVs, as we're talking, into public safety and disaster operations is what they're interested in. But the, the way to do that is, in this case, is to understand that disaster operations are what they are. We have incident command system. We have I, ICS-101. Those mm-hmm. aren't going to change. What we can do is enhance their operation, enhance disaster operations by the use of UAVs in various forms, all the way from the infra- the uh, uh, the imagery we're talking about, uh, infrared versus true color, uh, determining the spectral strength of the cell phone system, uh, flying a cell phone replicator in place where there's no communications, mm-hmm. delivering things. All those are possible in the world of disaster operations, but we really have to do it in consistency with the incident command system that exists today because people are trained. They're rewarded for behaving according to the ICS. Mm-hmm. So we just inject into that. And that's what we're doing. So there's three courses that are in place. Well, the first is a one-day awareness and, and uh, familiarity with, uh, with uh, UAVs. The second day is going to be about image analysis and extrapolation and, and advising uh, command personnel. And the third will be about uh, getting going. If you're a, uh, a government agency, how do you actually get started going down that mm. path mm-hmm. and, and get into operation? Right. But NDPTC, and I think the thing that, that the more and more I think about this, that's a sanctioned operation. That has FEMA backing. Everything has to be FEMA certified. So nothing's going to slip through that isn't really well, well done. Yeah. And it's really good to have that kind of basis, that rock to stand upon in terms of uh, credentials because we really have to make sure that the training programs, education we generate, have credentials behind them. Otherwise, they're going to mislead people rather than lead them. Exactly. Right. And mm-hmm. the FAA is taking the lead on that. And to Ted's point, too, uh, you know, we think we think about uh, disasters here in Hawaii. But uh, really throughout the Asia-Pacific region, we need to think about our brothers and sisters on a number of these island nations throughout the region who have limited resources. Uh, A number of these islands have no runways. So when you were talking about being able to put some of these capabilities in their hands and allow them to do search and rescue, uh, at least initiate that process uh, post-disaster, whether it's an earthquake, whether a tsunami, a typhoon that rolls through, um, you're empowering these people to um, to be able to help themselves before others show up. Mm. So where can we find out more information from uh, from your organization? Well, uh, on our website, uh, DroneServicesHawaii.com, okay. and then uh, also uh, DroneServicesUSA.us. And, Ted, if somebody was interested in getting involved either in that course or just, again, becoming a more educated drone operator, where would you recommend that I'd they I'd say go? go ahead and uh, check out National Disaster Preparedness Training Center, NDPTC in Honolulu, on the web, uh, or UH. Uh, the College of Engineering is where a lot of that activity is centered at UH right now. All right. Sounds good. Ted Ralston is a UAV consultant, and Mike Elliott is the co-founder of Drone Services Hawaii. We want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for being here again. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about monitoring tsunamis across the Pacific. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show at bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Bite Marks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here is a musician called Dan Deacon and a song called Learning to Relax. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.